Well, good morning. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. I'm a little nervous, though, all this effusive praise um, about what a great speaker I am. I'm a little, I feel like the expectations might be a little high, because um, I certainly know Matt Broadway. So um, it, it really is a privilege and honor to be with you. Um, when Matt asked me, I was just really, uh, really tickled for the opportunity to be able to come and share with you today. Um, uh, just in case you don't know, you guys have a great pastor. I want you to understand that. You really do. And I, and I hope you do appreciate that. And if you don't, you probably will after I get done. <laughs> so, um, it really, again, thank you for the opportunity and uh, for letting me be with you today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read from the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this. He says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the great gift that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And now as we come to this time where we study your word, we pray that you would teach us. Free our hearts and our minds from anything that might distract us. And help us to hear your voice. I pray that today that you would use me and correct me. Father, that I would neither be seen nor heard, but that you would be heard. We pray that your word would be quick and powerful today. And that our hearts and our minds would be changed because of it. And we pray that you are honored and pleased in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a seat. A lot of sermons are what I call you-do sermons. In other words, we show up at church on Sunday mornings, and the preacher stands up there, and he says, okay, as a Christian, you need to do this, you need to do that, and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's a good. Those are appropriate. We need those from time to time. We need those a lot, actually, because there's a lot in Scripture that speaks to our conduct as what we're supposed to do as, as Christians. But this morning, this is not a you-do sermon. This is a Jesus did sermon. Because I don't want to talk about this morning, not what we are supposed to do, but for what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Before I go too far, though, I want to issue a couple of warnings. I want to caution you about some things. There's an old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, the more familiar you are with something, the less you value it, the less you take it seriously. I'm not going to say anything new or probably deep or profound to you today. It will be stuff that many of you have heard your entire life. But I would caution you to take it lightly. Pay attention to it. In fact, I invite you to try to hear it with new ears. For, as if for the first time ever to hear what Jesus has done. And as you do that, I believe you will marvel at the majesty of it. You know, Jan asked me earlier... Uh, this week, she asked me what my scripture was going to be, and I told her, and she said, one verse? She said, you're going to preach for 30 minutes on one verse? And, and I didn't have the heart to tell her. It, the challenge wasn't going to be speaking for 30 minutes. It was going to be speaking for only 30 minutes on this verse. Because this verse is so rich, and it is so powerful, and we get the summary of the gospel here. In the previous eight or nine verses, Paul speaks about the reconciliation that is available to 
us with God through Jesus Christ. And then he sums it all up and talks about how that reconciliation is made possible in verse 21. In fact, John MacArthur, he, talks, he says this. He says, here in this verse, Paul summarizes the heart of the gospel, resolving the mystery and the paradox of verses 18 through 20, and explaining how sinners can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. These 15 Greek words express the doctrines of imputation and substitution like no other single verse. There's all kinds of big words in there. Imputation, substitution, atonement, propitiation. And I'm not going to use any of those words today because I don't know what they mean. But I can tell you what this says. And what happened on the cross was the most significant thing that has happened in the history of the world. A great exchange took place. And that's what I want to talk about, the exchange that took place on the cross. I want us to look at four things. Who Jesus was, what Jesus became, what we lost, and what we gained. The first thing I want us to look at is who Jesus was. Notice how he's described here. The, it says, for he, that, that he there being God the Father, made him who knew no sin... Speaking of Jesus. So the first thing this tells us about Jesus is Jesus knew no sin. He was perfectly sinless. He had no, meaning that he, he had no personal acquaintance with sin. Hebrews 4.15 describes it this way. The writer of the Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted in every way that we have ever been tempted. And yet he remained pure. He remained holy. He remained untainted. Now, I want you to step back and marvel at that for a second. Because that's one of those things we talk about, the sinlessness of Jesus all the time. But have you ever really thought about how incredibly difficult that is? I mean, I'm not going to make it through 30 seconds. I'm probably not going to make it through this sermon without sin in some way. And that's the way all of us are. Yet Jesus went through his entire life. Not only did he not do the wrong things, he also did all the right things. There were no sins of commission, but there were also no sins of omission. When he had the opportunity to do good, to be obedient, he did it. And when he had the opportunities to do evil, he did not do it. Jesus was perfect. And that allowed for a perfect relationship with his father. It's an amazing thing when you just stop and think about that single fact. Jesus never sinned. But why does that matter? Well, it matters immensely, it turns out. Because this perfection, this perfect obedience of Jesus in his life, qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now, in the Old Testament, we're real bad not to read, particularly... Um, uh, numbers and Deuteronomy and, uh, and Leviticus, you know, we kind of, eh, that's kind of, we don't like that very much. And it, one reason a lot of people don't like it is because they're very bloody books. If you ever look at it and you look at the sacrifices that were made and the things that were done to the animals there, and all of those things were pointing forward to the sacrifice that would be made on the cross. All of those things were pointing forward to Jesus Christ. But one thing you will notice that all the sacrifices had in common in the Old Testament was that they were perfect. They were unblemished. If you brought a lamb to be sacrificed, it was the best lamb. 
It was the perfect lamb. It was the unblemished lamb. And that is actually how Peter describes Jesus in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. And this was necessary. In order for him to be a sacrifice for sin, he could have no sin in himself. Otherwise, he would have been disqualified. If he had given in to temptation and he had sinned just once, just anything, he could not have been a savior. In fact, he would have, his death would have been for his own sins. They would not, they, he couldn't have been transferred to anyone else. It would have completely invalidated his ability to provide the work of atonement for us. To reconcile us to God. The sin could not be transferred to him if he had sin of his own. See, that was the problem with the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews speaks to this at length. That when the great high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, he would go in there... And make a sacrifice for the people. But he was also making a sacrifice for himself. Because he had his own sins that had to be atoned for. But when Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies on the cross. He had no sins to atone for. Therefore he was able to take our sins totally and completely to the cross. And atone for them. To pay the debt that was due. And that's the next part here. So we see who Jesus was, that he was perfect, that he was sinless. But then we want to look at what Jesus became. God says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What does that mean? It's difficult. I'm not going to pretend like I can really fully explain it. Because I think it is something that's very deep and difficult to understand this. It's interesting to note, however, what it does not mean. It does not mean here that Jesus was made a sin offering simply, because that would, there's a, they use a, the word to contrast between righteousness. And so it, it can't just be a sin offering. It's not saying that it made him a sinful person, because that would be untrue. No, in fact, in the original language, the, the phrase to be that is in our English Bible is not in there. So, literally, the way we should understand that is God made him to be sin. He made him sin. He treated Jesus as sin, the one who knew no sin, the one who was perfect and unblemished. He made sin. He became the representative of all that is evil, all that is sin, all the rebellion against God. Jesus became that representative. And the collective consequences of all that sin fell upon him. He took on himself all the sin of all men, past, present, and future. Notice here, he says he didn't make him sins, but he made him sin singular. Because really, the sin of the world is one. It's a singular problem, not a plural. If you remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the sins of the world, but the sin of the world. 
that Jesus was going to come and take away the sin in the world. And that's, and that's what happened. Jesus became sin in our place. And that's why it matters. Because he did it for us. That's what the scripture says. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, verse 21 doesn't mean that Jesus actually became or was treated as a sinner. What it means is the consequences of sin, of our sin that was due to us, as a result of everything we had done wrong, he took those consequences upon himself. He suffered the penalty that was due for sin. You see, a lot of, in a lot of the world today, in the church world today, People will say, Jesus came as our example. He came to show us how we should live. And that's true in part, but it misses the main reason Jesus came. Jesus came to be our substitute. That is the main reason he came. Right here, Paul lays that out clearly. Jesus came to die and suffer in our place. He assumed our identity. He became our sin substitute. Just like in Adam, because of Adam, we were all under his representation as our head. And because of his sin, that sin fell to all that belonged to Adam. All of his children, all of us. And that resulting sinful nature was passed on like a genetic trait. I mean, Matt hasn't gotten to Romans 5 yet, but you'll see that very clearly when he gets there. What happens with Adam as our universal representative. But just as Adam was our universal representative for death. Christ is our universal representative for life. Because he was our substitute. He, because he took our place. We can have life now. He was treated as if he were guilty of all the sins ever committed. Even though he committed none. Think about that for a second. Think about the gross injustice of that act, really. Jesus, who had never sinned, was treated as if he had done all the sin that ever occurred and ever would occur. I'm going to say something that's going to be very harsh, but I want you to understand it because it's very true. We put Jesus on the cross. You and I are just as guilty as Pilate. We're just as guilty as Caiaphas. We're just as guilty as Judas. Because it is our sin that put him there. It is our sin that he went and died for. And on the cross, Jesus took the full fury of God's wrath. He took it all. There was nothing held back. He suffered immense physical torment. That's for sure. But other people had suffered the immense physical torment he did. Jesus' greatest suffering was not physical. It was emotional. It was spiritual. Here you had God the Son who had been united with His Father in perfect fellowship from eternity past. And on the cross, that relationship was, however this worked, torn asunder. Jesus on the cross, remember His words, He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For that temporary time on the cross... That fellowship was lost. Frankly, we cannot comprehend the suffering that alone would have caused Jesus. 
So because he was our substitute, because God laid upon him our sin, he suffered the punishment that was due to us. Now this leads us to the first part of the great exchange. We know what Jesus was. We know now what he became. Now I want us to see what we lost. Because you see the transfer. You should have seen it already. That our unrighteousness, our sin, was transferred to Jesus. That's what we lost. It went away. It went away from us to him. Now, all through scripture, here and in other places, particularly in the apostles, you always see them put the atonement, put the cross, put salvation in, a, in judicial terms. And that's really what this is. It's like, a, it's, in a sense, it is a court of law. We are lawbreakers. You know, I was, I was doing some reading a little bit, and I was reading on guilt. And guilt is a, is a huge issue. I don't know if, you know, maybe you never feel guilty, but a lot of us do. And, and I was reading, and I was actually uh, really particularly wanted to see what a, a kind of a worldly or secular perspective on guilt was. And it was interesting, all these different ideas for what guilt is. It's this, well, it's just this self-imposed feeling of inadequacy. It's these feelings of inadequacy that your parents, parents were very big in the guilt thing. So if your kids are real guilty, it's your fault, apparently. And, and there's all these different things, all their, their cultural constraints and all these different things. And it never seemed to occur to these people that the reason so many people feel guilty is because they are. You know, it's not that tough. We're guilty. We've sinned. We have rebelled against God. Maybe that's why we feel guilty. And so there's this judicial context that, that, um, that salvation is placed in, the whole atonement and reconciliation to God. But we need to understand something. In this exchange, it's very important that we understand that sin's penalty was not ignored. It was paid. Jesus paid it on the cross. See, God never can lower the bar on justice. He is God. If he were to overlook sin, just turn a blind eye to it and say, No, that's okay. Then he ceases to be God. He turns to be something that is awful and defiled and unlovely and and something that we should not worship. He cannot do that by his very nature. And so what he did then was he did something unthinkable. In order to remain holy, he had to hold court. He had to declare sinners guilty. And he had to execute the sentence which was due. And that sentence was condemnation. It was death. It was God's wrath. I think Matt's actually going to get to that next time in Romans 3, 10 through 18. But that's the penalty. That's what God had to do in order to remain God. So, he could have done that to us, but he chose not to. He chose to take that wrath, he chose to take that guilt, and he chose to transfer it to someone who was not guilty. He chose to transfer it to his son. And when he put Christ forward, 
as that sacrifice, his wrath was completely absorbed, depleted, exhausted, removed, and eliminated because it was spent entirely on his son on the cross. Jesus took every last bit of God's wrath. We gave him that. We gave him all of our guilt. We gave him all of our sin. So what does it matter? It matters a lot. Because it makes us free. You see, because Jesus absorbed God's wrath, we no longer have to fear that wrath. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer fearful of that because Jesus took it all for us. Jesus freed us from the curse of the law. We don't have to keep it anymore because He did. See, it goes back to His perfect sinlessness. He kept it perfectly so we don't have to. Which is good because we couldn't keep it anyway. So that worked out really well for us. And it gave us freedom from the one who holds the power of death. And that's the devil. He was our ruler. He was our master. But no more. Because we have been freed because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Because our guilt, our sin, our condemnation and our punishment was transferred to Jesus. He exchanged it. He took it on himself. God did not spare his own son so that he might instead spare us. He did not remove the cup of wrath from him in order that it would never be presented to us. So here we have the first part of the great exchange. The non-charging of sin to the believer by charging it or imputing it to Jesus. That's the first part. So we lost something. We lost our sin. We lost our guilt. We lost our condemnation. But did we gain anything? Apostle Paul says we did. He says that we gained the righteousness of God in Him. Now I want you to pay attention here because I think this may be something we miss sometimes. Jesus didn't just come and remove our sin. He didn't just come clean us and say, He didn't take us back to neutral. He didn't take us back to okay and say, Okay, here you go. You're on your own now. That's not what He did. He removed our sin and He gave us His righteousness. So there's a two-way exchange. Two things happen here. We lose our sin and we get the righteousness of Christ in our lives. That we're not merely righteous, but it's, the language here says we actually become righteousness itself. The righteousness of God. Because that is who Christ was. That is what Christ is. And we are in Him. And we are like Him. And He is made of God unto righteousness. And that is who we are. That's who we've become in Christ. Our justification or our, um, our sinlessness, our freedom from guilt. He, he didn't, again, he didn't just declare us not guilty. He declared us right. He didn't just say you're innocent. He says you're right. You're good. You're perfect in my standing. And that's the basis for our forgiveness. 
in Christ is this two-way exchange. Christ's death on our behalf, Him taking our sin and us receiving His righteousness. And why does that matter? Again, it, it matters immensely. It is if in us, when God looks at us, it's if we had done it ourselves. Because Jesus did it. And when God looks at us, when we're in Christ, He sees Christ. He sees His perfect obedience. That is applied to us. That's on our account. That's on our rap sheet, if you will. God looks at us and He says, Ron Thomas, you're clean. Ron Thomas, you're just like my son. You're covered with my son. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect, of course. It doesn't mean we begin immediately. We turn into these people who live these super awesome, righteous lives. But it is about continually growing in that righteousness that Christ has given to us. Um, Thomas Hooker, a famous Puritan writer, wrote this. He says, Such are we in the sight of God the Father, as is the very Son of God Himself. In other words, again, when God looks at us, what He sees is Jesus. What He sees is Jesus' sinlessness. He doesn't see any of our bad stuff. He doesn't see any of our sin. He sees Jesus and His perfect obedience. And that is charged to our account. Now, there's a caveat, a qualification, however. This exchange, this loss of sin, this loss of guilt... This gaining of the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't cover everybody. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is only through Jesus Christ that we have this transfer. It is only through Jesus Christ. Because again, He is the only perfect sacrifice. He is the only one qualified to take our sins. Therefore... If we are not in Christ, if we are not relying on His work on the cross, His perfect obedient life, then we are lost. We have got to rely entirely on His righteousness, never our own, as the sole basis for acceptance by God. That's the essence of saving faith. Jesus has completed the work. It is done. It is finished. All we have to do is claim it. Nothing is left to us except to believe and to receive His death as our payment and to take His righteousness as our own. And that's a great exchange that takes place here. Stand back and marvel at that. That God gave His Son, perfect, sinless Son, He clothed himself in human flesh, lived a perfect life for the sole purpose of dying our death. The death that was due to us, the penalty that was due to us, he died for it. That's why he came. So that we didn't have to go through all that. So what does it all mean and why does it all matter? I'll leave you with three three things. First, it matters because it gives us safety. If we are in Christ, our punishment has already been endured to the full. 
We do not have to fear God's wrath. We do not have to live our lives in such a way as to think, oh, I better not do this, or if I fail, or if I mess up, God is going to squash me. Because Christ has already paid for our sins. We don't have to fear. We are infinitely and eternally secure because of His work, what He has done. Second, it it means that we have a good standing with God. We need to remind ourselves every day that our standing with God has absolutely nothing to do with us. It has absolutely nothing to do with our performance. It has everything to do with Jesus and His performance on our behalf. Because when God looks at us again, what He sees is Jesus. His righteousness credited to our account. So what the gospel should do for us then is it should motivate us. It should move us. When we, if you get this, if I get this, if I really understand what took place on the cross, we are going to be killing ourselves to be obedient to what God wants. It will move us. It will drive us. It will motivate all we are and all that we do when we really get this. And it will produce joy in our lives when we really understand what has been done for us in Jesus Christ. And that God, He's not going to, again, He's not going to just pitch us away if we mess up. Because our work doesn't matter for that. Our standing with God is because of the work of Jesus Christ, not our own. Third, I'm going to have to throw one big word at you. I needed this for alliteration purposes. Sanctification. has to do with our sanctification. Now, sanctification is just a big word that basically, in, in a real brief way, is a, it's, the, it's becoming holy. That's what it means, actually. It means to become holy. It means to become like Christ. That's the idea here, that we become like Christ. My uh, theologian Michael Horton wrote this. He says, um, Our sanctification is simply a lifelong process of letting the good news sink in and responding appropriately, becoming the people whom God says we are already in sorry, whom God says we are already in Christ. So our sanctification, our growth in holiness, is responding appropriately, becoming the people God says we already are. Now, I want to give Matt Broadway a little credit here because he used a great illustration I want to share with you. Um, I have a little boy who's two. And if I were to take this jacket and I were to put it on my little boy, it would just swallow him, right? It fits me pretty decent. But as he grows, what's going to happen to how this jacket fits him? He's going to grow, and it's going to fit him a little bit better, a little bit better, and a little bit better. Until one day, more than likely, this jacket will fit my little boy perfectly. Now, is that because the jacket shrunk to fit my little boy? No, it's because he grew to fill the jacket. And that is exactly where we are in Jesus Christ. This jacket is the righteousness of Christ, which has been credited to our account. We're all my little boy growing into that jacket. That's who we're supposed to be. And that's what we're called to do. And it is only because of the great exchange that took place on the cross. It is only because Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness that any of this is possible. We need to remember that we can only do because of what Jesus did.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your great love. We are in awe of your sacrifice, of your amazing mercy that you would send your Son, that he would clothe himself in human flesh, and that he would come, that he would die, that he would suffer in our place. Father, thank you. Thank you is inadequate, but is all we have. So, Father, now I pray that this truth would fill our hearts. That for those of us who know Christ and have accepted this offer and made this transaction, that we would understand it more deeply, that we would grow in it. As we grow in our knowledge, that we would grow in our righteousness, that we would grow to become more like Jesus, because that is what that gives you joy, gives you pleasure, and brings you honor. And Father, I pray that this this joy, this news that we have of this great exchange would not be kept to ourselves, but that we would go and that we would share it with all that we encounter. And finally, Father, I would pray that if there is anyone who is not made this great exchange, who has not given their sin to Christ and taken His righteousness upon them, that you would, Father, that you would really burden their heart, that you would make this just um, to overwhelm them with your love, to overwhelm them with this gift, that they too might come to know Christ as Savior and make this great exchange, that they could be forgiven and have eternal life and live with Christ in you forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.